Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're going to be covering listener feedback. Microsoft buying up more of the open source world. We take a look at PopShell, the new Pinebook Pro, OBS 25 comes out, and Half-Life 3 confirmed, and so much more. All of this right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode 166. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux is a show for all experience levels. So whether you're a beginner to Linux or a master sudoer, welcome. I'm Ryan, and with me today are the, this quarantine thing just feels like a normal day for a geek, hoarders of toilet paper, Michael, Noah, and Derek. So let's find out I mean, what everyone's been... the first part, sure, but not the other part. <laughs> So let's find out what everyone's been up paper? to this week. Not a hoarder. Well, you don't hoard toilet paper? Nobody's <laughs> hoarded toilet paper here? No, not, not toilet a... paper's bloat. <laughs> I, mean, I don't hoard, I don't hoard toilet paper. I just, I'm one of those people that uh, I was like, oh, I got a good sale six months back. And so I stocked up, you know? Well, I, I use a bidet like an intelligent person. And that oh, therefore I don't have skin. to worry about toilet paper shortages, you know? I keep telling people out there on Twitter, like, hey, they're, they're panicking over toilet paper. Get a bidet, become a true American, and do that. It's not American, just so we're clear. Yeah, Whatever. we're going Wooden off water. into the That's... weeds at this point. Yeah. Well, let's start with That's Derek. That's not the weeds. It's something This else. week, because we have a special guest <laughs> from the very popular DistroTube channel. So, Derek, welcome back to the show. I can't believe you decided to come back. Thanks for joining us to co-host. What's been new with you recently? Well, since the entire world is pretty much shut down, I have a lot more free time on my hands. So I'm spending a lot more time at home, obviously. So the last couple of weeks, I've really spent time cleaning up my GitLab repositories, cleaning up some of my configs and my scripts, packaged some of my uh, builds of various suckless utilities like DWM and ST for the AUR, the Arch user repository. Some of the stuff I've been meaning to do for months, if not years, but you know, time, right? And now I'm stuck at home and I've got all this extra free time because I can't go to work, can't go to the gym. You know, there's no sporting events to go to. You're pretty much stuck at home. It's like, you know what? I'm going to take care, take care of all that stuff I've been meaning to get to. So in some ways, the epidemic has been a bit of a blessing because I am getting a lot more done. That's yep. good. So you're still on Arch. Yes. You're still a huge fan of tiling managers, which we're going to talk about later in the show and get some of your insight on that. We look forward to that. And again, thanks for coming on the co-host with us. So, Michael, what have you been up to? I have been doing a lot of stuff for my preparation for distro hopping, all kinds of stuff like that, although I haven't hopped yet. So I told you like three, four weeks ago that I'm going to start doing some distro hopping. And, You're going uh, to Arch, confirmed. That is the possibility. Well, oh, it's, nice. Look it at is that. a possibility. But uh, there's a lot of th stuff that we've been also doing for DLN and also DL, the, po the podcast. And Destination Linux, we're going to be restructuring it to a like, different, you know, the different approach because we wanted to give it a different feel to make it more fresh and to just, you know, have some fun with the structure of it. And we also want to get your opinion about like how we changed it and, you know, what do you think about the new changes? We're going to be uh, focused on having one of the biggest changes that we're going to do a big topic, uh, deep dive. And we're going to pick a topic every week and go into like 
like everybody's opinions on it, have a big discussion on it and, you know, go into like maybe depending on what it could be, it could be like how you could help in the community, how uh, this one particular project works for us and that kind of thing. So I am super excited about that and I hope you are too. So let us know in the comments below or send us an email at comments at destinationlinux.org to let us know what you think. That sounds awesome, Michael. What I love about changing the format of the show, what you're talking about is that we have a lot of listener feedback and comments that we get in our email box regarding education of various things like picking a distro, what's the best software for this scenario? Uh, if I need to set up a home network, how do I do that? And this is an example of some of the big topics that we're going to get into. So instead of just being a podcast that covers news highlights, those will be in there and the important things we'll cover. But we're going to focus on one big topic to get in to help provide that education piece. Because frankly, some of our most popular segments have been the software pick of the week and tips and tricks. People absolutely are loving that to the point where they're basically begging for us to put them all on one website, which Michael did. So you can go back and look at those references. So that way, Destination Linux adds that not just news, but also additional educational elements. And it will work for everybody, no matter what your experience level is, which is our tagline for the beginning of the show. So I think it's going to be an awesome change, but we look forward to hearing your feedback on it. So with that, Noah, what's been new with you? As you can imagine, um, with the outbreak of COVID-19 and people trying to stay at, stay at home and stay safe, uh, business has kind of taken off. We're setting up remote IT infrastructure and, and setting up all the various components that people would, would need to be able to work you know, out of the office as well as they're finally starting to catch up on some of those projects at work. And so uh, what you're finding is that the Raspberry Pi is a very good open VPN server. It can stand in for a lot of, uh, a lot of really good things. What you find is that the setup scripts for PFSense really a lifesaver for small businesses right now being able to send their workforce anywhere. 3CX has a free subscription uh, for a year where you can get a premium subscription for 3CX and you can host your own SIP PBX system. And of course, we, uh, you know, we're using um, Vox Telesis as the, uh, as the trunk provider and, and many people in the community have said that they've taken very good care of them. So I, I, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, there is a, yes, there is a disaster, but those of us, like you said, who are nerds and have been quarantining and chilling since before it was cool, uh, this is just, we're just living in our second home. Like this is really not a problem for us. And so, uh, and, and yeah, it's just, it's, 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 it's sad from a human perspective. And of course, the, of course, the death perspective, but it is an exciting time from the, from the, from a technology perspective, right? Online grocery shopping is up dramatically. And they're saying that the technology that surrounds buying groceries online and having them delivered has probably advanced five years just in the past two days as far as where people were ready to accept and stuff like that. And so I think there is, I think that this experience that we have as a shared humanity, I think is going to leave its mark. And I, I think certainly there's going to be some bad things, but I also think there's going to be some good positive things that are going to come out of it as well. Trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. You know, I get a lot of comments about having bought a RAS, people who had purchased Raspberry Pis and they hadn't figured out a project they want to do. And, and Derek was talking earlier about he had a bunch of projects lined up that he wanted to get to. And now with this kind of having to be quarantined, has gotten to those projects. And I, I highly recommend if you are one of those individuals that have wrote us before, talked in general about having one and you're looking for a project, even to do with your kids. There are so many things you can do with the Raspberry Pi and educational software suites out oh, there yeah. and just building a Raspberry Pi. In my local lug, that was one of the first projects we did is we had a bunch of kids show up. And so I brought a Raspberry Pi and a case and a bunch of parts and they sat there and built it. 
there are so many fun projects that you can do like that to try to make the best of a bad situation because everybody's in this situation. Like your business is exploding. Some businesses are completely dying off. Oh, I would. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you weren't saying that you were basically stating, Hey, in some cases, businesses are growing and that's the market's going to leave. In some cases, people are are having terrible time dealing with this. But I think at the end of the day, you got to try to make the best of it that you can. I I, want to be clear too. You know, we're, we're down probably 40% as far as service calls go. So it's not like we're doing well or anything like that. And, 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 and I also want to just, I'll call, just acknowledge and call out too. I wouldn't want to increase business at the at, at the expense of somebody else's health or their sure. death, right? I would rather not have the business begin. So we're down altogether. But I, I but I, and I just want to make sure I'm being clear. It's just that in the in the event that people are starting to work from home, they're all we as a technology company have the ability to provide the tools to make people be able to work safer. And that part has of course taken off a little bit. Yeah. Um, you're not saying it's yeah, good. I, it's more like a diamond in the rough sort of thing. Yeah. I, I just don't want people to, to watch the episode and get done. Like, Oh no, it's profiting from all the, di-. no, 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 no. It's not, not like that at all. Believe me. We, we have, we've buttoned down the hatches to, uh, to weather the storm, just like everybody else. I think the way people are leveraging technology to take their business and and keep it alive is fascinating. Restaurants are utilizing delivery. The no-touch curbside delivery, Best Buy, for instance, is saying, hey, we'll we'll bring anything you purchase out to your car and put it in your trunk or in your car. You don't have to come in the store. They're not allowing people in the store, but they're trying to find creative ways around this. Best Buy is doing that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a, and they will no longer set up things inside your home. You know, they had the whole home theater service, but what they're doing now is they're doing free delivery to your doorstep as close as they can get to your door. They'll drop off your theater equipment, your TVs. I think this is going to leave a long lasting mark on society and how we look at technology and leverage it. I know a lot of businesses in disaster recovery had planned for everything from earthquakes to natural disasters and having call centers split up in different areas of the region in case a natural disaster hits. But nobody was thinking about this as a global event where there is no other place to stick your call center that's safe from this. So the only thing you could do is get people with laptops at home. And that's going to leave a long lasting impact of how they look at disaster recovery going in, forward. in a good way. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah, I think yeah. some of that preparedness that they'll have from that will, will stay. And businesses who may have looked at work from home is never going to happen. I want people in the office with no cue walls and flat tables and everywhere. They're probably going to change their approach. I, I think a lot of them will going forward. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing to talk about. Just It's just because it's like, there's, it's a horrible, horrible situation, but there's also, you know, some, you, the diamond in the rough thing that there's something that could be happening that could be good in the summer, in some vein. And there's also like things that are in industries you wouldn't expect to do anything like this that are focusing on remote now, like, uh, you know, there's the the movie industry has had like completely changed their dynamic and like many of the companies have done it anyway not all of them but a lot you know like there's a you know some some they talk about like box office numbers of how many people how much money they make per movie and whatever the amount that they made the last weekend was less than usually one movie makes and like the entire box office so a lot of these companies have transitioned to start like when they re- they an- announce a new movie or release a new movie in theaters they're releasing it online too so you can just rent it and the rent is actually kind of like there's a it's like 20 bucks to rent the thing and it's kind of interesting because people have been arguing like well that's too much for me cuz i go to the theater selling 9 dollars or something it's like yeah but per person 
So if you have a family paying twenty bucks and you have four people watching, you're actually I don't know any money. theater where a ticket's nine dollars. What part of the country no, they're not, in? Not now. Every yeah. theater I go to now, it costs sixty, seventy dollars by the time you get oh, popcorn, yeah. a drink, and a movie Easily. for four people. Oh, okay. it, it's insane. Well, I'm so also cheap I, in I think matinee, it's a so. steal. And I've been begging for this for a long time. I personally, growing up as a kid, loved movie theaters. But as the prices continued to get more and more ridiculous, and, I, and I'm sure there are people out there listening to the show that own movie theaters and things, and I get that there's a lot of expenses and reasons why those prices get jacked up. But it's so insane that I just wait for the movies to come out. And yes. I, I haven't been in a theater. It's rare. Probably once in the last three years I've gone to actually see a movie. It just is nothing that interests me about the movie theater experience anymore outside of the fantastic popcorn because I'm a popcorn freak. But outside of are that, you really? I can make that. Are you home. really a popcorn freak? Oh, I love popcorn. Oh my gosh, man. dude. We, every time we get together, I find something else about you. That popcorn, we chicken wings. I mean, I have just a, meant to I be. have the AMC in my area has a deal. You buy this bucket for like 25 bucks and then you can refill it as much as you want for a dollar. Yeah, that's a pretty yeah, buddy. sweet deal. Yeah. So I, I think it is interesting. Industries are changing. They're finding new ways and delivering movies is a win. I think in some cases, of course, if I owned a movie theater, I would probably be thinking this is a curse, but things will return back to normal eventually for them. And, and I think to bring a different draw, like alcohol and dinner theaters and things like that to get people to want to go to a movie. Theater. Well, I don't think the theaters will survive if they keep charging me $6 for a box of Raisinets. I mean, they have to change that. Yeah. Well, that's why you sneak them. Oh, you're not supposed to do that. Never mind. No, you don't illegal. do that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> so, Ryan, what's new in your world? So we recorded another episode of Hardware Addicts. If you've not listened to this podcast yet, I highly re recommend you check it out. It's really awesome. We have Wendy on there, Michael and myself. We talk about just pure hardware. That's the whole focus of the podcast. And this week, we discussed the drones. I have the Hollystone HS270 here, which is a foldable drone. We talk about that. We talk about cameras. This week, Wendy answers a bunch of questions from the listeners on cameras and ARM processors and how they're taking over. So check that podcast out if you're not already subscribed. We also hosted a really fun patron chat for the Destination Linux Network. So if you're a patron of DOS Geek Channel, of Tux Digital, of Destination Linux, you were welcome to join us on video chat on YouTube yesterday, and everyone was welcome to join us in the general chat. And we just kind of discussed any topic that was on people's minds. And I think it was really great considering the quarantine, the isolation and everything to talk to people from around the world. We had Gabe on there, of course, from Italy, and we know they were heavily impacted and things. So it was just a great relief to talk about geek things like Star Trek and Linux and hardware without having to worry about all the other stuff going on in the news. So we're going to be doing that every month. That's our second time of doing it. So if you are a patron of anybody's show, you're welcome to join and the details will be posted in for the next month in your patron uh, chat. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a really awesome concept because we were talking about the whole, you know, quarantine thing we're having to deal with. And it's also kind of like, you know, there, there's limits of saying that you shouldn't have more than 10 people in a group or whatever, because we're doing it virtually with the patron chat, we actually can have a, a way more people in, in the group. So it's a really fun experience to have that. This is actually how we're doing my lug event for next month. So the Georgia lug event will be done in zoom because we know people aren't going to be able to show up yeah, physically. So again, changing the way we do things. And I think it will still be a really good time. Yeah, absolutely. This episode of Destination Linux and the entire DLN network is now sponsored by the awesome folks at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. 
It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multi-storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers. Look, every week we talk about this stuff. And right now, if you're in a situation where, again, you've got more free time, you're stuck at home. We talked about the Raspberry Pi, DigitalOcean. This is a great time to take this credit that you get, $100 credit, two months free. Go to this web address, do.co slash DLN. You could utilize this credit to spin up some servers, to test some things out that you've been interested in in the past. DigitalOcean is just an amazing service. This is how I learned Linux so fast. I've gotten that question a million times. I've talked about DigitalOcean being one of the keys to my ramp in Linux in just a few years. And if you have not checked out DigitalOcean, you have 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials that you can walk through. That means that these tutorials are out here step-by-step of how to set up a droplet how to utilize their pre-built apps that are basically one click and you can drop certain servers out there and just start playing and learning new things that you can set up from VPNs to file storage to WordPress sites, whatever you want. DigitalOcean has the ability to run it there. So if you go to DigitalOcean, two months free, go to this web address, do.co slash DLN. That's do.co slash DLN. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode and the entire Destination Linux Network. Joe writes to us to say, Hello, when it comes to banking, I can't seem to find a bank or credit union that doesn't have JavaScripts trying to run all over the bank website, including the login and credentials page. So currently, for example, I have an account and I won't touch their website with a 10-foot pole. Attached is a screen cap of the NoScript Firefox add-on and all the JavaScript it is disallowing while the website asks for me for my credentials. Can you give me some advice about banking on the web securely? As I am unable to find a bank or credit union that doesn't run other people's Java while asking for credentials, I find it unacceptable even with NoScript running. Thanks, Joe. P.S. Outstanding podcast. All right. So this is a bit of a complicated question because JavaScript on banking sites or just JavaScript on the web in general, uh, you're going to have a hard time finding an online bank. As a matter of fact, I can go ahead and tell you it's pretty much impossible to find an online bank that's going to let you use their site without having JavaScript enabled. And this really goes deeper than just JavaScript. It, it, the problem is other than just JavaScript is can be a security nightmare. It's a lot of these sites are running, quote, non-free JavaScript, which for those wondering what that means, it's non-free in the sense of free software. The code, when it's rendered, is really made ineligible. You can't audit that JavaScript. You don't really know what that JavaScript on that site is doing to you. You don't know if it's tracking you, what kind of data it's trying to get from you. So a lot of people, just for the ethics of it, disable JavaScript through the SnowScript plugin on Firefox. And I can tell you that works on some websites, but on a lot of big commercial retail sites and on pretty much anything that does online banking, financial websites like your trading platforms, uh, things like PayPal, you're gonna have a hard time using those sites without having JavaScript enabled. You're, going, you're forced to use JavaScript if you're going to use those online banks. You just are. It's something that really you just have to make a decision, a moral decision, whether you're going to use that site or not. There's really no other option. What do you guys think? 
I always suggest people when they talk to me about banking and, and staying secure online, they say, well, you know, you get, I, I can funnel two people into these categories. The people that say, I don't like the technological choices that the banking system is making, and I still need to be able to use online banking. And the other category of people that fits into here perfectly is the people that say, I don't really understand, nor do I want to understand IT security. I just don't want people to hack into my bank account. And so when you start looking at where there is low-hanging fruit, what you find is the fruit attached to bank accounts is very large, right? Um, There's a lot of payoff there. There's a real reason people would want to compromise your bank account. And so we have to treat that threat vector fairly seriously. And what I tell people is, Get a dedicated device. It can be a dedic- It can be an older Android tablet that you're that you're no longer using. It can be a repurposed laptop that you threw Lubuntu on. It can even be a Chromebook. Um, but find some dedicated machine. And the only thing you do on that machine is online banking. Is there a little bit of inconvenience experience there that you have to go get this the 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 banking computer to do the banking? Yes. Do you dramatically lower your threat vector when you don't have the same computer that you're doing banking, the same computer that you have team viewer installed as root and and Zoom chat that you know has the ability to capture your screen and uh, you know, simple help and any of the other proprietary things that we all use day to day, we have to, to get our jobs done. Um, but you don't necessarily want those things with root access to the machine that you're using to access your bank account. Um, I that- think that's great advice, Noah, because the answer to the question is no, there really is no banking service. I mean, I'm, maybe there's one, but there's no big bank banking service out there that we could say doesn't run JavaScript. But I think you can take precautions outside of that. For instance, People, it's amazing what you can see if you just sit in a, you know, maybe a coffee shop or somewhere and observe people. They'll do their personal banking on the Wi-Fi system of a coffee shop. They'll do their personal banking in the hotel Wi-Fi because they're on a trip, so they don't. They'll go update on a their computers on the hotel. You have any idea how many times I've seen machines start to resolve, and I think to myself, man, you know, as, as somebody who's in charge of the network, do you have any idea how easy it would be to? Mess well, you that. you have no idea. We had Bo. We got the coffee shop's permission. I've talked about this before. So we had Bo Weaver, a professional pen tester in our lug group. We go to the coffee shop. We got permission from the coffee shop owner. And he basically was able to spoof the Wi-Fi of the coffee shop. Everyone there's connection went down for a second and then came back up. And it says you're connected to coffee shop's name. And so he had spoofed every single person in that building to show how easy it was. And when I say easy, it took them like 15 seconds to set all this up and run the script. Boom, the the coffee shop's Wi-Fi goes down. Your connection restarts, says you've reconnected to it, but you're actually on his Wi-Fi. And now he's seeing all of your information coming into his machine. It's that simple. I would be less concerned to Noah's point about the JavaScript working around it because it's just an unfortunate thing to to Derek's point that you're not going to be able to work around and more concerned about setting up basic precautions that you can do of where you're banking and how you're doing it. Let's say you're at a hotel and you have to do something with your bank. You're going to be far more secure going through a VPN, obviously, or just using the cellular signal from your phone versus going and using the Wi-Fi in a hotel. I think there are more things you can do there to limit the impact than uh, just worrying about the JavaScript piece. Not that it's not a worry. It's just something we have. I would to also say that, the, yeah, there's, there's certain aspects of JavaScript that can be bad. There's also aspects of JavaScript that can be good. So for example, there are JavaScript encryption things. So they, they could be encrypting your password and your credentials locally on your computer and then sending it through that encrypted hash 
through the, the network and that do so there is some benefits that you could say that JavaScript I mean I don't know if your bank does this or if you because you can do this there are some arguments to say that JavaScript is a necessity when using banking because it does do local it well, can be do using local encryption in in many cases these banks it is a necessity and that's part of the reason why we unfortunately have to tell Joe no he's not going to be able to do online banking without JavaScript is these banks have no other choice. Even if they wanted to, they are government regulated. These, the online banking is government regulated. They have to do certain things with, you know, uh, centralized authentication in some places. And because of that, they're forced to use these JavaScripts. They, They have no other choice. Yeah. And one last piece of advice I would add in there is ask the bank, the security levels that they go through. For instance, when me and Michael were choosing a bank for Destination Linux, we found one that actually sets up honeypots and other things for the to, for part of their security. They also have extremely tight security in how they handle things and multiple login credentials, two-factor authentications. Like They go the whole gamut to try to keep people out. If you go sign up with a big national bank, you're going to be a bigger target, right? There are more people who are going to say, hey, I'm going to go after this huge national bank and try to go for its customers more than they're going to go for phishing scams and other things for some no-known bank that may be just regional to you. But if you're going with a smaller bank, you need to make sure they're applying proper security and things like that. So definitely do your homework on the bank you choose. And that could be a big deal, a a big help to you as well in your security. Right. And a quick note, just to do like an extra asterisk to Noah said, I also think that may like, I'm curious if no, if Noah disagrees with this or not, but I I think that another, instead of doing like you have, you could have the same device instead of getting an extra device and maybe doing a VM where you just do it inside the virtual machine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that totally works. The overhead to set up a VM is a little bit higher than than just purchasing a Chromebook at Best Buy, depending on your skill level, right? So right, the true. so the I mean, in this audience, that works very well. My the, my my go to answer is typically reserved for you know I have no idea if these people are comfortable installing operating systems or maybe you know we always say it's the show is for everybody you know beginner to pseudo if you're looking for some place to start and you say I don't really know how to flash operating and stuff like that just go buy a dedicated device if it's separate from everything else you've dramatically lowered your threat vector that's good yep. Up next in the feedback, Anonymous writes us to say, hey, I know Floss or FOSS development is highly dependent on donations and one is wondering what a good amount of do- what a good amount to donate to projects would be. There are so many companies I would love to donate to, but I'm not sure if I would be wasting my time by donating, say, $5 to each or if it would be better if I donate a larger sum to just a few teams. This has been on my mind for a while. And want to I want to be a contributor to the free and open source uh, community uh, and not a leech, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what to use. So good luck with the future episodes. Please share the spare the stool references. It might have persuaded me to buy one or too many stools. I guess I just went <laughs> over, against my own wishes, didn't I? <laughs> Thanks, anonymous. So it also says, by the way, I don't run Arch. I use Kubuntu, which I, I appreciate that. You can't use, uh, by the way, and then say Kubuntu. Kubuntu is a fantastic distro, but don't steal from the Arch community. <laughs> Yeah, Here's exactly. the thing. That guy, I was like, I was with that guy until he made the stool comment, and then I was not with that guy, and then he made the Kubuntu, and then I was back with that guy. <laughs> wow. It's a roller coaster so you, of you emotions. Just had a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was rough for me. 
So uh, as far as like the actual like the question is, uh, you know, what is a certain amount? So it's not necessarily like yeah, the more money you can give, obviously, that's going to be better beneficial to the project that you're giving it to. Uh, as far as like helping out the community, if you if you can spread it out more that you're going to depending on what projects you use, it will be, be beneficial because any amount is beneficial to these uh, projects, especially like, you know, the open source approach is they're not even expecting anything. So something is if, if you give a dollar to a project or to basically anyone who's in this ecosystem, you're going to be giving them not only some money, but also a massive amount of motivation because they're, you're letting them know that you care enough about what they're doing to give them something, you know, and that just that, that itself is a benefit. Like we even say, just saying thank you to someone will give them motivation. But if you go to the, the a farther step and actually give the money on top of that, you're going to be doing more than just the money itself. So it is important. So as much as you want to, as much as you can give, that's a good option. But don't go beyond what you can. So uh, that's. And what I would say. also say when you're talking about the amount, let's say they have a twenty dollar budget and they're saying, "Hey, I don't know if five dollars really helps. I don't know if I should split it out between four different open source projects or give one." $20, you know, donation to a single open source project. And the way I try to justify my expenditure, and I remember making a video on my channel still out there saying how much money I saved since I switched from Windows. That is such a lie. I have spent so much more money now in Linux because of the donation factor. But here's my rule of thumb. And, and that's chosen though. Instead of being forced to spend that money in the, like in a Windows environment, I get to choose who I want to support in the projects out there, which does make a difference. At the end of the day, I look at what projects do I use that I use on a consistent basis and or especially any project I make money on. For instance, OBS. OBS allows me to make YouTube comment or content and I make money off of that. Therefore, I'm going to donate to that project that's certainly going on the list. And then I look at desktop environments and the distros that I use the most often. And I look for their projects that are beneficial to them. And I'll look within there. But you have to keep in mind that I think a lot of the open source donations, if you're giving $5, that's amazing. If you're giving a dollar, that's amazing. You're giving $20. Because the whole idea is that a bunch of people are giving that, just like this show, is supported a lot on a few dollar donations. We have people who give $20. We have people who give more. But the vast majority of it is a couple dollar donations. And those add up to be the substantial piece of our donation amount. So right. I, I wouldn't be so concerned about how much you're giving. If some project does something amazing, maybe you just give them a one-time tip that month and then spread your money out from the various projects that you use. At least in my opinion, I think help as many as you can out there that help you make money or help you be productive with whatever, whatever work you're doing. The one thing I, I would say is... Uh, if you're going to donate a small amount, make sure you donate at least an amount that the fee associated with donating just doesn't eat it all up. Like That's if true. you donate a dollar to somebody through PayPal, you know, PayPal is going to take almost half of that. So, you know, bump it up a couple of bucks if you can. Otherwise, sure. you know, the, the company that's actually processing that donation is going to take most of it out. That's a yeah, good point. Like Patreon has a thing where like a long time ago, they would like it was like we offer a dollar on our Patreon because we were like the founder status where you they like you if you were a member of their Patreon system prior to them changing their system, you were able to do like one dollar ones because the fee wasn't so drastic. But now if you sign up, the fee is massive. So like it's the same kind of problem with PayPal. So that's a great point. So basically, 
like if you want to give as much possible without the fee being taken out, then $3 is probably like the minimum I would suggest. And it's, it's kind of interesting when you bring it up because it's like, it is about 33, 35% of the right. dollar is taken for the fee. So the and more it doesn't you give, matter less that, that happens. Right. And to the, to the creators, you know, of the software that you're donating to, they're happy to get your donation, but you as the person donating may not be happy with that so much of the money you were donating was taken out as a fee. Yeah. Right. It's a great point. But thank you what, for bringing that forward and talking what, about donations because it's such an important thing that we should all be thinking about. In I want to, I want to, I want to add one, one more thing. The, you know, when I go to do donations, um, you know, and, and I'm frequently put in a position in where I'm deciding for other people what they're going to donate, right? Because effectively I'm deciding what we're going to charge and then what we're going to donate back to that project. And the way that I've always kind of gone about doing that is I try to I try to treat it just like any other business. If OBS was a product that was for sale and I was going to pitch that product to a to a potential buyer, I would go through and I would tell them what the the benefits are and then I would say, well, the competition is Wirecast, that's $599 to get started. So if they're spending 300 bucks or 400 bucks on OBS, that's a great deal for them. And so that, you know, or $250, I have it, $300 uh, and, and, how, and, and donate that money to OBS. That's not a bad metric to try to figure out what, you know, what would be beneficial to that open source alternative. If you're donating $300 to OBS, well, you got, you got a broadcasting software for half of the price that the competition would have charged you. And that's a pretty substantial donation for them. Yep. That's a really good point. I like that. We love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or video that may get incorporated into the show. Send your video links or your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So first up in the news this week, we're going to talk about Prime, Pinebook Pro and Manjaro because they have teamed up and the new uh, Pinebook Pros that you purchase one from this point forward, they're going to be shipping with Manjaro KDE Edition by default which is really awesome. So if you wanted to get one, you can pre-order it right now. They they went out like a couple of days ago, the pre-order started. Now the actual product won't come out till May or so. So it's like, it's just more of a, just a the next batch kind of thing. Uh, the refreshed version will only feature Manjaro by default with some software tweaks made to unlock the performance, but it will also uh, be the physical, the physical laptops also gets correct, corrected standoff height for pillars holding the keyboard and the bottom of the chassis together. This is improvements to the, the physical laptop. Uh, the uh, Captain, tape used in places where the sh uh, where shorts can introduce interference audio devices uh, screen bezels are now not only pressure fitted but also held in place using adhesive tape this prevents dust from entering the crevices between the lcd and the bezel so making it more durable uh, and also lucas from pine 64 said this as many of you know we have developed and fostered a truly special relationship with the manjaro team over the course of the past three years their OS images for our single board computers and the original Pinebook were a were and were and remain some of the best supported software options to date. Uh, also, you can check out the uh, Jason Evangelos article from Linux for Everyone. He posted an article on Forbes. He talked about the all the details were related to the Pinebook Pro and Manjaro. So check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes for that. And I, I'm personally I'm super excited that this is happening because. I think that the, the effort that the Manjaro team is putting in for the support for all the Pine products is just so impressive. And the Pinebook Pro is such a great laptop, also a super cheap but high quality laptop that having this combination is just just great. When you talk about a dedicated device for banking, here you go. You got a $199 laptop that you can dedicate for banking here. But as an owner of Pinebook Pro, obviously I'm, I'm a fan of Arch. 
and I'm also a fan of Debian. Debian came by default. You could install Arch Manjaro Arch on this uh, after the fact. And I spent most of my time from the very beginning, I told everyone this, in the Manjaro ISO because it was just so much faster and snappier and you could get more packages than you could get in the Debian version for ARM. And so I've been utilizing this from the very start. In fact, I don't think I've taken that SD card out. I never overwrote the Debian install, but I haven't taken that SD card out since I've got the Pinebook set up on Manjaro. It is a better experience. The updates to it are rolling out constantly. And I'm so excited that they partnered up with them to create a Manjaro version of this because it is really the best experience, I think, on the Pinebook Pro is Manjaro. So if you've not put Manjaro on one yet, then wait for this to come out. Or if you already have one, then put Manjaro on it because you're going to see a whole new side to that Pinebook Pro that you may have not seen before. If Just out of curiosity, if you run Manjaro, is it by the way I run Manjaro or by the way I run Arch? You know, I think Derek needs to answer that question. You know, there's a lot of people in the community who are like, Manjaro isn't true Arch, but I, I view it as it is. Uh, that, that's not Arch true. Experience. Yeah, Man, Man, Manjaro is 100% compatible with Arch. There you the repos, go. they're a little slower, two weeks behind mainline Arch typically, but you can enable the unstable repos in Manjaro, which are actually the Arch repos. So yeah, you can say, by the way, it's okay in my book. There you go. You can say, by the way. No. Do you run Manjaro? Because I'd like to hear you say, by the way. Here's the thing. I run Kubuntu. That's a shame. No, go. it's not. It's a great yeah, distro. It is a great distro. Uh, Manjaro i3 edition is really good too. Nice. It's kind of like how I feel like the Arch would be like, if someone has a problem with it, just say like, by the way, I run Arch adjacent. Adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> no, Manjaro is a fantastic distro. I love that they've teamed up. This is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go on, one of our patrons, Nico, said, maybe it should be, as a matter of fact, I run Manjaro instead of, by the way, I run Arch. Nice. I love that. Yeah, that is nice. We'll, we'll have we'll have uh, we'll have to outline all of those. Here's how you here's how you introduce the, your distro, the phraseology that goes with it. <laughs> Actually, I run Arco. Wow. <laughs> there Actually. you go. There you go. <laughs> hey, speaking of phrasing things and framing things, uh, Microsoft is not taking over the open source industry, but they did buy. NPM. Microsoft-owned GitHub is in the news this week for purchasing NPM, which is short for the Node Package Manager. NPM is a package manager for JavaScript programming. It contains 1.3 million open source projects in its repository. The plan is to integrate NPM's infrastructure with GitHub, and the result will be one of the largest open source software repositories owned by Microsoft. With ownership in LinkedIn, GitHub, NPM is buying up developers' hangout spots and growing bigger in open source control by the day. We can say that this is to Platinum membership in the Linux Foundation, along with its work with Canonical and WSL and Hyper-V. Like it or hate it, Microsoft is going to be involved heavily in the direction of open source and the continuation and the future of Linux. Um, here's the thing. You know, all those times that you hear us say here on the show... And pretty much everywhere else, uh, when people ask what Microsoft would have to do to convince us that they actually care about my open source, yeah, this is not what we're talking about. No, this mm -hmm. isn't it. No. Um, when you're buying stuff up, you know, one of the reasons people are drawn to Linux and open source to begin with, I think, is because we have a natural rebel tendency. We just we want to buck the norm. We want to tread, you know, forge our own path. And I think that when you start getting large corporate companies that buy up what were open source hangout spots, 
they stop becoming open source hangout spots. Do you know why GitLab has done as well as it has? It really, ha- I mean, GitLab offers great services and they're a great company. I have nothing against them, but let's face it. The biggest thing driving people to GitLab is the fact that Microsoft bought GitHub and people don't like that. People don't like the idea of being under Microsoft's thumb. We're not ready to trust them because they haven't earned it yet. Yeah. You know, and I can speak from personal experience when Microsoft was rumored to be purchasing GitHub, even before they announced it, I synced all my uh, stuff over to GitLab in preparation, just on the off chance it did happen. And well, I'm, I'm not the only a, one. They had such a mass migration. I remember when that yeah. happened, we were at Self, I believe, or it was just after we were at Self, Noah, and the just GitLab before, folks just were before there. Self. Yeah, and they were saying they're just running rampant trying to get the infrastructure in place to handle the mass amount of migrations that were coming over to them from there. So I I know it is a big deal, but look, at the end of the day, I think what is happening here is what we've predicted was going to happen. And I've received flack for it that Microsoft's going to come up here and buy up everything that is of interest and that's popular in the open source community. And that's exactly what they're doing. It's a smart move for Microsoft. It may not be a great move for some of the people in the community who have spent a lot of their time in Linux and open source trying to get away from Microsoft. Is it good for open source when Microsoft owns GitHub and NPM, when they own so many open source repositories or repositories of open source? Yeah, they're platinum member of Linux Foundation. They're heavily involved with Canonical and WSL and Hyper-V. So I guess it's where you want to take this. Some people think that's exciting and great and we should welcome them with open arms. Other people are very against it. I, I'm, on the, I'm on the side at this point that it's too late. We have welcomed them. There was enough people accepting it and Microsoft is going to continue to buy up everything they can from everyone they can where it becomes well, popular. I mean, I think that's just the reality of our future, like it or not, that's what's going to happen. Well, I mean, in terms of like, I'm going to be a devil's advocate on this one. So I think that there's uh, some some value that they could be bringing by provi- providing like m- money and funding to these platforms because NPM had some big uh, security issues a while back that were like massive. They also had problems where people who just felt like it got rid of one of their packages that destroyed like 30,000 packages that were dependent on it just because they just felt like it. And it was because it wasn't managed properly and that kind of thing. So you could say that maybe this would solve the problems in NPM in that case. However, I, I, I'm not saying that I like, I don't like Microsoft and I've made that clear. And I, I, and, but I think that there's, you know, Ryan's you're right. It's has, it has kind of come and gone that they're already, very heavily trench, entrenched into the ecosystem. Too late at this to point. close the gates when you already invited them in. Well, I mean, there's, but the problem is, is that my point of the devil's advocate is that there's nothing we could have stopped them with because the entire structure of open source is be welcoming yeah. and allow people to do what they want. So if we offer them the ability to do that and then there's, say you can't do it, it's uh, contradictory to the know, concept. I disagree because the community, I, I feel like, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I just think it's the honest reality of evaluating the community. There was 50% or more of the community saying, all of you people saying Microsoft's bad and stay away from Windows and don't dual boot and all that. You're, you're, you are the problem with Linux. And so that community was very vocal with that. They basically said this new Microsoft has changed. Let's let them in. And I think that allowed people to have a different approach to Microsoft doing what they're doing here. And I'm not saying it's all evil. Microsoft may very well have changed. They've done some great things out there in the community. The reality is 
if you look at even what they're doing with COVID and some of the research and the AI and money they're pumping in, That's, they do great things out that, there. Is that Microsoft or is that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Microsoft is doing some of that. Microsoft also created a thing where they're doing open source election election uh, software. So there's like a, they're doing a lot of stuff in the open source space. It's not like they're making stuff and then like only open source in a code dump. They actually are promoting. They are code dumping, yes, but they're also creating projects specifically for open source in like the philosophy by default. So there are it, it is a different I, I company, my, but it's still Microsoft. So I still have that. I, I guess, ugh I guess feeling, my thing is you know? this. There, there is a difference between um, between coming up and saying, "Okay, we you we we can't stop you if you want to develop and and contribute code on GitHub and you have the massive budget to to, to fund a bunch of open source projects and throw them up on GitHub. We can't stop you. That you you'd be right in that regard, saying there's nothing the open source community can or should, I might add, do to stop that. What Microsoft has done, what Microsoft continues to do, is something very different." They're not just entering into the community, playing by the same rules everybody else does, and then contributing back and saying, well, I guess this is the game we play. This is how we play it. They're buying out the game. They are looking and saying, well, we tr we first we tried to beat open source by saying that it sucks and that it's a cancer and that Linux is terrible and open source is, is terrible and proprietary is the way. And that didn't work. Well, if we're going to have to live in an open source world, how can we control the open source world? Well, let's pile the infrastructure up around it, and then we control the, the open source world. This is what makes me uncomfortable. This is what makes me not trust Microsoft. If they want to, why do they have to own GitHub? Why can't they just put all of their resources on GitHub the same way that every other open source project does and trust that the people of GitHub are running properly? And if they don't well, like GitHub, why don't they start their own? alternative and and let people and, and and of course the reason to those questions because they're rhetorical is they're not going to host their code somewhere else because they don't have control over it and they're not going to try to start a competitor because they know they wouldn't be successful at it so and, they're and they, they're they, they, they're better they suited to put their money towards open source and even buy if, out open source Sorry, even if they ahead. wanted to host their code on their own servers start their own version of github they wouldn't do it because they know they would never open source that stuff anyway at least when you but, buy something like github it's already a proprietary company they e can e even if they did open source it though nobody would nobody would use it nobody would come to microsoft's version of github it would never work the only way that works is if they buy an existing thing and because so many people are tied at the hip to GitHub already that they weren't going to try to get off. Uh, that's why Microsoft grew to the dominance it had at open source. And to Ryan's point, we missed the boat. The opportunity, there's a difference between saying, we're not going to stop you coming to the table and doing that, and we are not going to actively help you. But developers are going out of their way to say, oh, you you want Linux to run on, on WSL? We'll just, well, here, here's our developer. We won't have him develop closing bug reports or fixing stuff in Linux. I mean, we'll lend him to you, Microsoft, and he can fix WSL inside of Windows. So that can be a real happy story. That's what's frustrating to us. And Microsoft doesn't need Canonical or anybody else to buy. Microsoft can hire their own developers and they can pay mm -hmm. them very well to do those things. Instead, we're spending open source resources on this stuff and it's kind of frustrating. Turns out Microsoft's well, quite brilliant from a business strategy standpoint. What they're doing here out. makes absolute sense. They are outplaying, outmaneuvering, and doing what Microsoft does best. They're also doing it to Android. They just released an app on Android that basically they couldn't compete in the mobile space. So what the app does is it takes over the interface of Android, provides an overlay that only provides Microsoft products. Then they release this beautiful Surface Duo device, which is absolutely gorgeous and out there that runs Android, but with the Microsoft 
interface over top. So they're doing the same thing to Google. They come in, they basically realize, hey, if we release a phone, nobody's going to buy it. So we'll just create an interface over top of it. And now you're in Microsoft's see, infrastructure because it free downloads all their apps. And you are talking exactly what you're 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 speaking to exactly what I'm talking about. I just looked up the, the photo of this duo. So it's like essentially two phones that Beautiful. fold into one. Now, why not release that device just as an Android device? Why does it have to have some Microsoft crap nonsense on top of it? Why couldn't it just be an Android device if they were really? In fact, here's an idea. Sony has a Sony open devices. If Microsoft is really all in on Linux and open source, why didn't they release a Microsoft open device that maybe comes with Android stock Android and uh, you can load whatever ROM you want onto it? Okay, there's so a reason you know, they're a trillion dollar company. They're a genius at taking over people's. Okay, yes. Uh, okay, okay. I agree with everything you're saying as far as philosophically, and I don't like Microsoft, but you're making make me money. devil's advocate again. One, Why? the phone, like Android has launchers in every company. Samsung has their own Fine. thing. Everything has their own launcher. The, Android sure. was specifically meant to be able to use launchers. That's not that okay. big of an issue. Two, going back to Noah's point about why did they have to buy GitHub? GitHub was going to die. That was literally what the company CEO said at the time, that they were looking for money to be purchased out because they couldn't sustain the amount of people who were trying to use GitHub. It was just going to go away. So it was either going to get bought or die. So that was the main choice. And there was people competing on who was going to buy GitHub. And the, the competing things against Microsoft, Microsoft was actually the least of the horrid because it could have been Google or Amazon that would have completely made it worse because that's what Google does most of the time because that's what they did to to Android. So like there's there's I'm not saying that I think that Microsoft is the is you actually has completely changed their ways and they're you know everybody should love them or whatever. I'm not saying that, but there is some devil's advocate points to say there are some benefits to them doing You're not wrong, things. but you got your Android story only is piece of it, right? It's not just a launcher, it includes all of their applications overlaid on top of the Google applications, right? So you don't see you you now have Microsoft Word, Excel, OneDrive, all of that installed as a default. Whereas if you're talking about other launchers out there, they just installed a different interface that you know provided three. No, they also put their own apps. Like I mean, the, there's Samsung Sometimes, did the same thing. But, I mean know, they replaced apps all taking, the time. They're basically making their own infrastructure out of it. And I'm not saying it's not a good move. I think it's brilliant. I'm just saying that's the pattern they follow when they want to be in something sure. and take it over. I guess and they my do extremely well at it. And if I worked for Microsoft, I'd be sitting here going, yep, we did it again. I agree. But I think my was a brilliant point was this move and we're going to make millions and millions off of it. And this is what we do. And they outmaneuvered everybody, I think, in this. And they're going to continue to because... They're very good at it, and people fall yeah. for it very quickly. I mean, I agree that my, I, I guess my, I devil's advocate thing about the Android thing is not that strong. I just meant my mostly the big with the devil's advocate I was t making was the the fact that GitHub, like the reason why they bought it, was because it was going to die, and it the of the options that were going to buy it. I mean, I agree of the options. Yeah. I'm happy Microsoft was the one that got them without yeah. a doubt. So OBS 25 has just been released. OBS is the open broadcaster software. I'm sure all of us here are familiar with it. Yeah. I'm sure we all use it to create our content, our video content especially. So OBS is one of those critical pieces of open source software. We were talking earlier about donating to open source projects. I love donating to OBS because it's such a fantastic piece of software. 
But this new release, version 25, has some really cool new features. Now it comes with a browser plugin. The browser plugin feature, by the way, enables some drag and drop functionality where you can actually drag and drop like a, uh, like a scene from a website. You can actually drag it over to OBS like an overlay and just drop it so right awesome. in OBS. Uh, they now support the open source SRT protocol. SRT, I think, stands for Secure Reliable Transport. It's kind of a new protocol for streaming, uh, but it, it's a pretty big deal in the open source world. Now, this new release also has the ability to lock the volume of a source in your audio mixer. I especially love that new feature because yeah, there are some sources sure. that I never want the audio to change, the volume level, and I just want to lock that thing down. So now you just right-click on the little uh, cog wheel in your audio mixer, and there's a lock option in that right-click menu, and you just tick it on, and that never changes for so you. Nice. Their tray icon has been updated. I actually don't use system trays, so I never actually see my OBS tray icon. But I have seen other people that stream that that tray icon really doesn't change. But now it actually shows when the recording is paused. So it's a different icon, you know, when you start and stop. You guys, what do you think about OBS? And if you've tried the new OBS 25, I know those of you on rolling releases have probably already got it. I got it uh, just ooh, a couple of ooh, days ago. Ooh. Yeah, no, OBS 25. Yeah, it's this is one of the projects that I'm so proud of in the open source community. When you think about certain projects where people say, well, what's the professional tool? I'm not, I don't care if it's open source or not. I want the best tool. Well, the best tool here happens to be an open source tool. Yep. OBS is the best tool out there, period. It's the most professional. It's what most professionals use. It just has incredible amount of work that goes into it. Everyone that works on that project should be so proud of what they've accomplished with OBS. Uh, one of our patrons just said, breaking news, Microsoft just bought it. So that probably will happen uh, without a doubt. But <laughs> OBS is it's just an amazing feat of software. And I am every time they do a new release, I'm over the moon with the features they add because it's that mm -hmm. thing you go, sometimes I didn't know I needed that, but now I love it. Or it's one of those things where you go, finally, this is one of the features I was looking for. And it reminds me of the fact that the people who work on OBS obviously use their own product. And that's why the features they release each time are the features that you go, that's exactly what I needed, or I didn't know I needed that, but I did because they use it themselves. And I think this is a perfect example of a project that just works. It's, it's fantastic. It's the best, one of the best examples out there of how open source is better than any of the other alternatives in the professional world. Right. So devil's advocate on this one. I'm kidding. It's awesome. Um, th this, I, I love OBS. It's my, it's my favorite. It's my favorite tool for creating content at this point. Like I, there's other screen capture. If anybody tools doubts that, that, just ask him how many scenes he has. It's yeah, not I, that I, many. It's just, you don't like create that many scenes if you don't like so. it. I was actually going to bring that up. Michael, I know you have a lot of complicated scenes in OBS. One of the new features for this is the ability to copy and paste multiple selected sources into a new scene you create. Yes. Oh, so, hallelujah. That'll make his life much easier. Well, it, it does. It, it will. I'll have 700 more yeah. scenes, Noah. You're welcome. Right. See? This, yeah. No, the, I'm, I'm happy for you, man. I the, think that's great. No, no, no. This is what's awesome about it. Like, I uh, like there, <laughs> this is like 
when you uh-huh. you could you could copy things and it wouldn't work, but oh, there's like yeah? there were some ways to copy it and it'd be like you kind of you kind of uh-huh. create a, a reference, you can create a duplicate, but That's now you can so have good. multiples because Imagine I doing have that very, 700 times, no. Uh, yeah, I have a yeah, uh, I that actually imagine. did happen. Uh, not 700, wow. but like it, it was a lot. Uh, it's it's I love the fact that they added this, and I also love the fact that they what added the browser plugin because the browser plugin yeah, is a, you can shush. The browser plugin is a great, <laughs> uh, awesome uh, plugin that was actually created by a separate a third party, and there was there's some issues with it because there's you know no software is perfect or anything, but the fact that they are in, they're like implementing their that third party plugin into like the actual s- software so that they have official support and all this stuff to improve these things. I am super excited about this. I I, I'm probably too excited about it because I am a bit huge fan of OBS. And prob- we know you yeah. spend every single week making new scenes. Listen, no, okay. every time yes. you change your expression on your face, like you just smiled, that's a new scene he just switched to. When you're frowning, Is that's a new that scene he switched he, to. Okay, so that's, yeah. that makes more every sense. Every emotion we have a different scene for. I see. See, if he would have explained that early on, I would have understood. I just, I always thought it was just something he did. But I, I'm glad to see that the developers of OBS are, are catering towards Michael. Hey, I just, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention this. If you are interested in OBS, if you use OBS, I, I think we have a certain responsibility to go out there and support these guys. Um, head over to their site. They have a really easy way that you can become a monthly subscription. Sign up for a monthly subscription to support the development and continuing ongoing of OBS. Large companies especially, if you're using it for promotion, if you're using it for marketing, stuff like that, I get it. You're trying to keep your, your bottom line low, but Facebook has even jumped in and said, hey, this is so valuable and critical to the operation of our business that we're going to support OBS. I think we all should do that. By the way, um, if you want, not even joking aside, if you don't want OBS to be bought by a big company like a Microsoft mm-hmm. or Google, then you better start donating to these projects because this right. is a huge, I, I'm surprised OBS hasn't been bought already. Right. Because think about it. They Microsoft released Mixer. They are into the big streaming thing. What would hurt Twitch or some of these other streaming services if you want to compete Zoom. in there more than anything else is to buy the very software that every streamer out there utilizes. I'm shocked it hasn't been bought yet, but you want to keep it not bought? You better start donating to these projects. Well, it would make sense for Google to buy it since so many YouTubers use it. Yeah. Yes, Google could too. buy it. Any of them could. Yeah. Amazon mm-hmm. for Twitch and all, like, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Like, OBS, the way OBS is handling it is so nice because like they they have the same philosophy of open source, but you know people say that there's there's no I I would never sell out. There's probably a price for every. I forgot who said that. Oh, it's, it's a wrestler from like the eighties, Ted DiBiase. Everybody has a price. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so in that sense, you know, I I if you want to keep it, you know, in the open source realm, we should make sure that the the price that they do want are, are okay with is coming from us, not from these big companies and stuff. Yep. So up next in the show, we're going to jump to our spotlights and picks and stuff. So we're going to first software spotlight is GitLab. So if you're wanting an alternative to GitHub and my devil's advocate didn't help, uh, you can, well, actually I'm still just kidding. GitHub is all, GitLab is awesome. Uh, oh, Microsoft so, just bought it. Okay. Wait, well, you took too long to get to the software spotlight. My bad. My bad. I'll work on that next time. So if you've never tried DevOps platform like GitLab, then check, definitely check it out. It's a complete open source DevOps platform uh, delivered as a single application. You can you can host it yourself or you can just use the GitLab uh, services. Uh, they have a free version as well as a, a, a version that you can uh, you know get if you use it for your company for enterprise and that sort of stuff. So they got different tiers and different prices and stuff. But you can also just host it yourself and I think it's really great. So you can get the GitLab team uh, helps imp- uh, teams improve 
improve cycle time from weeks to minutes, reduce development process costs, and decrease time to the market while increasing developer productivity. So if you are if you are using GitHub or you or you don't want to use get something that's like a Microsoft product or whatever, GitLab is definitely worth worth checking out. So Derek, let me ask you in this, I have not switched. I, I believe I actually have a GitLab out there, but I never made the official switch because most of the people were downloading my scripts and things. We're getting it from GitHub and that's where the videos were made. But you obviously made the switch over. What is your true opinion, not just being an open source enthusiast between the difference between GitHub and GitLab? What are the pros and cons of it? Um, no real difference for users like us. We're just going to throw up some public repositories. We'll get the occasional pull request or in GitLab. They, the terminology is a little different. That's a merge request rather than a, a pull request in, a, in GitLab. But it's basically, other than the layout of the website, it's a little different. You're not going to notice any difference. And moving from GitHub to GitLab, they take care of all of that for you. It's an automated process. You just tell them, here's my GitHub repository. And they just pull all that to GitLab. And you can leave your GitHub repositories up if you want. You don't have to delete them since you've got people going there anyway. Yeah. I deleted mine because I just told everybody all my stuff's now on GitLab. But yeah. you can have your you can push to different Git hosting platforms. You don't have to delete your GitHub. You can also have like a mirror thing where they're in sync to each other. So if somebody wants mm -hmm. to use GitHub to give you like a support, like an issue thing, or they want to give you like a pull request, you could still use that, but still focus as the GitLab is the main. So it's a consistent syncing. If I was to always push my stuff to GitHub, is it set up so GitLab always pulls it over or? No, you would push it to GitLab and GitLab would push it to GitHub. Yeah. I think, I think that's how okay, they structure it. So you use it. GitLab as your main. Yeah. So you, I, it is technically possible to do both where you just push it to both at the same time or you push it individually if you want to, like however you want to do it. But there is, I'm pretty sure that GitLab has a syncing system where it goes back and forth. Very cool. Our tip and trick this week is XPROP. You can utilize the command XPROP to get information on window and font properties in an X server. Once you type XPROP, you'll be given a special cursor. Click any window and get a readout of information. This can be useful for macros, tiling, window sizes, and more. For those of you using tile window managers, you're probably already familiar with the usefulness of XPROP. But if you're not on a tiling window manager, now you know. And you should also probably try a tiling window manager. So I'll just throw that out there as well. It's also useful if you distro hop a lot because I sometimes try out these various distributions and especially if they include tiling window managers out of the box, like some of the various flavors of Arco or Manjaro. And I hit the key combination to open up their terminal. I don't know what the terminal emulator actually is because there's no title bars. And if I just do a quick XPROP, it'll actually tell me what that program is. So I, I nice. do actually use XPROP. Yeah. Yeah. You can use that to even set your applications that you want to launch. If you need to know how the application reads itself out for the execution command, you can use XPROP mm -hmm. for that when you click on it. It's a very useful tool that I discovered when learning tiling managers that I've used across even when I use a regular desktop environment. It's just a very cool little tip there. So just type in XPROP, you'll get an X cursor, click on the screen, it'll read out all the information you need. So XPROP is a perfect transition to our core story this week that we're going to talk about PopShell. Now, last week, Emma from System76 mentioned PopShell. It's in development. It's not ready for everybody to go download yet. So keep in mind, anything we're talking about are really just suggestions for them any critiques or anything that we'd like to see in future iterations of this. But I thought it would be perfect to get in this discussion because Derek, on DistroTube, you are a huge fan of tiling window managers. 
me and you have had battles before even over this topic. You have finally decided I3 is the most superior tiling manager, which I'm proud of you for coming Fake to that news. conclusion. Oh, what? Huh? <laughs> Fake news. Well, tiling managers, if you've never <laughs> used one, there is a huge learning curve to them, especially if it's your first time. Once you've learned one, you'll probably be able to go and hop around to the others and try them out. But there is a learning curve there. But once you get the flow going, you'll realize how productive you can be on a tiling manager, but it's hard to get people to take that first step. So I was pretty excited about the idea of Pop Shell. Much like Ubuntu Budgie Shuffler, they have a tool like that, which is kind of a GUI tiling window manager. And it doesn't have all of the quite the same features or capabilities of a pure tiling manager desktop environment like an i3 or an awesome but it does give people that kind of transition, I think, to understanding tiling managers and to see the productivity that you can get out of one. So the first thing I want to talk about, Derek, is people may be asking themselves, why use a tiling manager? I kind of explain my point of view that from a productivity standpoint, having all those screens up at one time, being able to move them, not have to move your hand off of a keyboard, I think makes a huge difference. What are some other things you found in using tiling managers of why people should even be looking at them or interested in them? Extreme customization is the big deal. So the way I use it, I have multi-monitors, I have three monitors, and, and you know, I, I have different layouts where depending on the lay layout I'm on, you know, windows will appear different sizes, different places, and a different layout. And it really makes, we were talking about OBS earlier, recording certain scenes in OBS a lot easier because I just hit a key combination and this program opens on this monitor and in this exact size, you know, it, it does save me a lot of headache. With a floating manager, I would have to try to resize the window and get it in the exact mm -hmm. spot to record in OBS. I don't have to do any of that with a tiling manager. Yep. I think those are good points. And you basically set up keyboard shortcuts all over the place. Like for me, if I want to move a window around, I usually have maybe it's command shift and the arrow keys, or you can use the HJKL if you like the uh, Vim commands. You, you have a bunch of options to set up macros to move windows around very quickly if you want them vertical, if you want them horizontal. So Pop Shell comes in and kind of puts a GUI interface on top of this. And one of the options, much like Ubuntu's Budgie's Shuffler, is you can kind of click an auto tile option with this where it kind of tries to do the tiling with the screens that you have open for you. So Derek, I know you've been playing with this. You did a video on your channel about Pop Shell. What do you think it does well? Well, I, I think it does allow people to at least see what tiling is about, but it's still beta software. Let's get that right out of the way. It's not perfect. There's some bugs with it. So it's, it's actually not going to be released until at least the release of Pop! OS 2004. And even then, I don't know if they'll call it a 1.0. I doubt they will. Most open source developers like to start with zero point something for a right. release. But it, it is like a gateway drug, I think. It could be, anyway, to somebody wanting to try a tiling window manager and they're already on GNOME. That's the other thing. You kind of already have to be on GNOME to even bother installing this because there would be so many dependencies hundreds and hundreds of packages you have to install to run this extension. So if you're not on GNOME, I, I wouldn't even bother with the GNOME shell or, or the uh, pop shell. I would just install a proper tiling window manager, to be honest. Now, Noah and Michael, you have not really used tiling managers, I don't think, before. Incorrect. Oh, I have. Oh, I have. I, in fact, my, the, the machine that's at my, in my lab at my shop 
um, it's the machine that I do all my, you know, I get in the morning and do all that. All of that is, uh, it's, um, is all done with i3. And the, the, and the reason for that is, you know, when you're, I, I look at computers a little bit differently. I, you know, there's, there are computers that have daily functionality where it's just a day-to-day computer, those kind of things I would not want to tiling window manager. But when you have task-based PCs, that, you know, a machine that's just going to do this one thing, I need the terminal open. I need my email open. I need a web browser open. And I just need those three windows and I'm going to bounce between the three of them constantly. I don't want to be moving stuff around. I don't want to be managing stuff. I just want to click into or tab to whatever window I need. Yeah, I think that telling window managers are really powerful. And I do like a lot of the aspects of them. And I also like the ability that some of them have where you can turn off the tiling for a window and do like a floating thing if you want. Uh, But I do I do like the like the, the experience of having a full desktop environment is like is my preference in terms of day-to-day usage. I agree with Noah that a tiling window manager is great for like appliance structure. Uh, but I also like the tiling windows, tiling window manager concept in general. Like I used to use Awesome and i3, and I like both of them for different reasons. Uh, but I think that my preference would be a combination of the two. My, maybe not necessarily this particular combination, but like a combination of a tiling on top of a DE, I think has a lot of potential for uh, a bigger audience in terms of like mainstream approach and stuff. I am um, a big fan of X Monad too. Let's not uh, let's not rule yeah. that out. No, no, no X Monad is great too. Yeah, yeah. yeah X Monad. What is, is your favorite, is, Derek? Speaking of, is it X Monad? It's the one I probably have spent the most time in. I've been an X Monad user on and off for you know nearly twelve years, probably. Xmonad is a little different the way it handles multi-monitors, and I prefer the way Xmonad handles multi-monitors compared to something like the awesome window manager, where each monitor is its own workspace, and all the workspaces are shared amongst all the monitors. So, you know, if I hit a key combination to switch monitor one on workspace one to workspace two, the monitor that had workspace two on it, they swap places. Nice. And it's it's just fantastic. Once you get used to it, you would never want to do multi-monitors any other way. Now, i3 has a Wayland iteration. Does Xmonad or any Awesome or some of the other ones you like have any Wayland? Some of them have Mm -hmm. plans to eventually move to Wayland. I think there is a project called Waymonad. I don't know if it's really under development yet. It's also Sway, too. Sway and Waymonad are working together to make tiling on the Wayland work pretty good. Like It's still in the early stages, but you know, because Wayland's in the early stages still. But like in general, it's pretty good. The good thing about Xmonad being written in Haskell, there's a gigantic Haskell community out there. A lot of people work on Xmonad, so they'll be fine. They'll get that working on Wayland just fine. It's the ones that have smaller development teams that may not be able to put resources behind porting over to Wayland. Very nice. So what features did you feel like you want to see in the future? I don't want to say don't like because it's not a completed project yet, well, but what are some things you that they need to improve in your opinion? There are some limitations they are going to run into being a GNOME extension. You're going to run into new versions of GNOME breaking your extension, potentially. That's something you never really have happen in tiling window managers. You know, they usually don't break your configs with you know backward compatibility issues. So I, I think they could have some problems with that. Uh, but Pop! OS is a static release distro, so it, it's not that big of a deal. I think another problem they're going to run into is most people that run tiling window managers, the default multi-monitor behavior for tiling window managers is typically every monitor is its own workspace. For everyone I've ever used, and I've used dozens of tiling window managers, that's not going, going to be the case in GNOME. And I don't think they could ever make that be the case in GNOME just because of the way GNOME handles workspaces. So I think 
Yeah, it's a, a big deal breaker for most people That's that want to use a tiling window manager. Would you say that the pop shell was seems like the best uh, approach for like a in, like like this like you said a gateway drug kind of thing where it's like yeah. it's a way to introduce the concept without having to go all the way into the the tiling window manager like ecosystem. Only if you are already on GNOME. If you weren't, it's not worth it to install GNOME, the full desktop environment, and then you have to install TypeScript, which most people are not going to have that on their system either. You're going to have to install all these packages just to run this. If you really want to try a tiling window manager and you're not running GNOME, just install something like i3 or awesome. They install in seconds. Log out, log back into the new tiling window manager. Give that a try. And you're going to be much happier in those probably anyway because they're actually not alpha quality software, right? <laughs> I think it's really interesting because there are other GNOME extensions out there that do tiling and they do it pretty well for, again, like we're talking about here, an extension that attempts to replace something that is in, in many iterations, a full desktop environment like experience. And they do a pretty good job overall. I think Pop Shell has a lot of the great features that I've seen of these style of extensions and it needs work. Mm -hmm. There are things that I think in Tiling Manager, for instance, I don't want title bars. And I know yeah. you covered this DistroTube in, in your video specifically about the title bars. That's one of the advantages of having this is you want as much, you want to maximize the amount of real estate you have on your monitor so you can have as many screens up. This is great for networking and for monitoring and you've got a bunch of screens up. You don't want title bars everywhere. If you have shortcuts set up for everything, you know what you're executing anyways. You don't need to see that. And you could probably identify it by just looking at, hey, that looks like a terminal. It's probably a terminal. You don't need the title bars there to to help you with that. So I think you could always you could always run Xprop if you're con confused there you about go. what's running. Bring it back <laughs> Xprop. Yep. So I, I think there are some things that they can continue to improve on, although I'm very happy they're doing this work because there mm -hmm. are some people who are not going to go and do a custom setup of i3. Because like you said, Derek, yes, you can go and in seconds install i3, but you're going to basically get a blank box with no indication of what the shortcut keys are. You're well, going to go with the default setup and then you're going to struggle to figure out how you do launching or anything else. I think this that, is something that is like training wheels. That depends on the distro. Things. That depends on the distro. There are distributions that have customized i3 and also like in the repos. So uh, even Debian and Ubuntu based distributions, isn't there regolith? Isn't that a yeah, PPA regolith you can just it. add? Uh, you know, obviously all the Arch-based distros, you're good. You can pull down custom tiling yeah. window managers left and right. So Regolith is a, is a Ubuntu option for, you know, having a by default kind of thing. And then Arco has a good i3 option by default and stuff like that. And I think that, that that's a good point where there are some that do handle the, you know, the issues of getting into the, like the first, the ecosystem in general. But like, I would also say like the suggestion of like just installing the, the, D, the window manager and then, you know, switching to it while super fast, it does have that problem of most of them having no reference to what anything does or any, you have to go find a, a script or a shortcut list to maybe try to figure it out. And that, that could be an issue for some people. So I, I like the idea overall. I think that pop, that pop OS doing this is a very interesting idea and it does take the ability for people who have, you know, heard of tiling window managers, but didn't they, when they look at like screenshots of it, they're always, they always look like they're too complex and they're just, there's too much to learn too too much to deal with. And they just don't want to go through that process. And I, I've been personally having used them before, I understand that opinion and kind of agree. So I would want the ability to, you know, have some tiling functionality 
but sitting on top of something I'm already using. So if they're already using Pop! OS, they're already using GNOME, there's a lot of potential for this to at least give them like the taste of a tiling window manager. And then maybe if they want to jump into the the full ecosystem, they can go from there. So I, I like the, the things I'd love that. is they added a launcher like you would get in i3 or some of the others. And it looks like K runner. So yeah. they have the launcher where you can pop up and just type what you want. And it's going to execute that. There were some really cool things in here that they did and it's in beta. And I, I'm guessing it's going to get much, much better as they go. Yeah. I'm excited for this because I think it's going to introduce a lot of people to it. And I heard Michael is now going to switch to GNOME because of it. So that was really great news. Well, thankfully, uh, I think that they're doing this and that's really cool. But uh, Plasma already has this, a semi-tiling thing built into it. So I, I have that already. Uh, and and so GNOME, there, there's already three or four other tiling GNOME extensions already before Pop Shill. And I've tried some of those. And I, I got to admit, Pop Shill is actually better than all the other ones I've tried. Nice. Yeah, which that's a good point, too. And I think that there's a lot of potential to it, but maybe wait until the actual 2004 comes out. Yes. So it's the polished version. But it's, it's a it's, little bit of a pain to set up right now if you're not somebody who's used to, you know, doing that terminal magic and finding dependencies and things. So I would wait till it's officially released if you're not somebody who likes to explore and open bug reports and that type of thing. Yeah, and, and depending on the distro you're running, you you can't even install it because unless you're on a bleeding edge rolling release distro that has GNOME 3.36 already in the repositories, you're not going to be able to get it installed anyway. Yep. Yeah, that's true. And if you're looking at more uh, tiling window managers, you just want options, we'll have some links to the different options that you can check out in the show notes, as well as links to uh, Derek's uh, channel so you can find out where you know more things about his going. When you mean options, you just mean I3, right? Okay, good. Sure, sure. Yes. The, I will only put i3 in the list and a bunch of other things too. What? You broke up. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a connection problem. <laughs> All right. So for gaming news, I've been wanting to say this for, I don't know, five years plus. Half-Life 3 confirmed. I mean, is it though? Well, yeah. They just were smart enough not to call it Half-Life 3 because they knew all of the nerds out there who've been wanting Half-Life 3 would just freak out and hate it no matter what they did because I mean, the anticipation for this game has been so high it's become a meme in the geek community forever of when are we ever going to see the next iteration of half-life and to the point where i think gabe himself was like you're never going to get half-life 3 you just was refused because he knew that there was no way you're going to live up to the expectation so what did they do they released a vr version of the game so you have to have virtual reality to play this game so that's going to be a huge cost increase to uh, entry into getting into Half-Life. But number two is they just named it Half-Life Alex. So refuse to put the three there, just put another name after it. But it, basically it's Half-Life 3, right? I, I don't know. I've never played Half-Life, any of them. I don't game. So I mean, wow. I am so disappointed to hang out with both of you right now. <laughs> Even I, actually, I have played Half-Life. Thank really? you, Noah. Have you? Finally. Yeah. Oh. Someone who's a self-respecting geek. No, I'm a, this is about the most shameful thing I've ever heard on here. <laughs> I'm a gamer, but I haven't played Half-Life. I do. I like. I know some memes from Half-Life, like Mesa, Black Mesa and stuff, but I don't know the actual. Like, You're I, dead to me. It, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. What if anyways. we did a, like a thing where I did? I could do like a live stream and like the first time experience playing Half-Life. That. How cool. about you just go play it on your own and catch up with the rest of the planet? Yeah, but it'd be more fun to do it with other people watching my nonsense of how I like ha- my experience of playing a game from 1998 or whatever it's from. Like, so I, one of the greatest fun. games ever, Half Life, now has a third version I mean, out if there. If you say so, 
Yeah, and Valve has confirmed they will be releasing a Linux version, sticking to Valve's commitment to Linux, which is awesome. I am a little upset that it's post the Windows release, so they say they're actively working on it, but likely it will come out after the Windows version comes out. So that wasn't too exciting, but hey, at least we're getting one. We're going to be able to play this game, unlike the new Doom, which we're going to have to hack away at to get working in Linux. Uh, So those of you who have been waiting for the new Half-Life, those of you intelligent people who have already played the game, unlike Derek and Michael, uh, you will need a VR headset to play this game. So that is a big cost of entry. Noah, did you ever pick up your VR headset? No. No, I, I, here's the thing. I badly want to get into VR. I just don't have time to get into VR. Yeah, and the cost is definitely an issue, and plus the room that you have to have, although I hear they're making improvements on that where you won't have to have as many sensors and things set up and as big of a room as you need to really take full advantage of it. I will tell you this. One of the reasons why I've not gotten into VR, quite honestly, is when you look at the games and the graphics, and I get the whole experience of having the VR headset in and looking around and seeing the room, and it looks really cool, but the graphics have been, I I don't know, they look 10 years behind. You know, when somebody's cocking a gun or something, the gun looks like, I don't know, I drew it in Microsoft Paint, and the hands don't quite look right, and people's wrists are flipping around when they're trying to shoot at aliens, and it just looks goofy and silly and i'm not going to spend seven hundred dollars to play a 20 minute game because a lot of the games that come out with vr are very short they don't even fully produce the game because the amount of weight they have to put into development to make the environment completely viewable and interactive interactive with is just a ton but with this half-life game i will tell you that looking at the screenshots it's the first game i can tell you that looks absolutely stunning graphics the world looks beautiful and in depth and like you're being swarmed by aliens that are coming at you from all directions and the you know adding that to the soundtrack and the fact you're going to have a vr headset on i kind of see why valve who's been heavily trying to push vr and get people into it went this route with half-life because it's one of the first games that actually has me going man maybe i need to pick up one of those vr headsets you have me convinced I'm going to make a video on it when it comes out. <laughs> you already have a VR headset there, Derek? No, I'll borrow one. So Yeah, that's <laughs> a good way. You just borrow one from a friend and never give it back. Yeah, I like that. I, I yeah, like the should... idea of this game. Like, it looks really good. It also, like, they're, you're right about most of these games are really silly. I've seen, like, GIFs of, like, people putting, like, this weird, like, fake food service game. Or, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And, a lot of stuff like that. But this one looks really awesome. And I there's only one other I could find that I that I know of that looks like a really cool, like looks nice graphics is Taylor's Principle. Like that's a mm. really nice game in any way, if you like that sort of point and point and click kind of game. Uh but this this is uh this is, looks like a lot more, you know, intense game while still being the VR night. Like I I'm really excited for this. I wish I had VR. Uh but uh we'll see in the future what happens. And I, I, I agree that it's not it's not that it's it's un- unfortunate that they didn't come to Linux day one, but it is Valve, and we have to give them some benefit of the doubt because they have done so much for us already. I'm not bothered by that. Yeah, there you go. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want a behind-the-scenes pass into the making of the show, you want to hear us give Derek all kinds of flack, that won't make it into the regular show, then you need to become a patron. That's worth it alone. 
Our patrons help keep this show going and get perks like access to the live recordings and unedited versions of the show. So if you can't make it with us here live on Sundays when we're recording, you can go back and listen to the show on your own time. The best part is you can join for just a few dollars on Patreon or sponsors. Destination Linux Network also is a great way for you to become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums. Discuss the show, the network, and all the listeners from all around the world all in one place. If you're looking for more live chat sessions and join us on Telegram, we have well over 1,300 members in the community interacting with one another and sharing their passion for Linux. If you want to learn more, head over to destinationlinux.network. We love hearing from you. Please get back to us and provide some feedback or ask any burning questions you may have. Remember to send those video links or comments to the email address comments at destinationlinux.org. Please try to keep the comments brief as we may include them in a future episode of the show. Also, don't forget to go to the DLN store and pick up some swag from across the network of podcasts and shows. We have a limited edition design that shows off all the founding shows of the Destination Linux Network. Grab yourself a hoodie, t-shirt, coffee cup today. Many even claim wearing a DLN shirt is a life-changing experience. Is that true, Michael? Oh, it is true now. You just said it. So, yes. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying that. Yes, I'm going to order two then. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I love it. It's very true. It's, you know, especially with the with the coffee, it makes it taste so much better. Like, I don't know how it does it. It's just, That's what it's we just hear. magic, you know. Uh, but if you also want more, some more content from us, the fun doesn't stop here. We also have our own channels you can check out. You can find Ryan at youtube.com slash dosgeek and also uh, dosgeekcommunity.com where he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com where I have an in-depth weekly Linux news podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. And Noah can be found at the AskNoahShow.com, where he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. And excuse you can, me. Excuse what, me. Huh? My website is LinuxStool.com. Oh, my yeah, bad. Get it right, I'm Michael. He bad. literally put it there, and you won't read it. I put well, it. It's he, in the show notes. It, he has the real one slash that one, so I was like, maybe it's, it's my choice to pick That is the one. real one. Oh, it's amazing we create a podcast about stools, mm-hmm. and he goes and creates a bunch of websites that have nothing to do with mm-hmm. stools, a bunch of website names. It's ridiculous. Use the right one. LinuxStool.com. But I didn't Tux make my a podcast stool about Fill my stool. Right. Thank okay, you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Welcome, so, fill my stool is, right. is, we'll is Ryan's. Yeah. Mine is tuxdigital.com and Noah's is linuxstool.com. And uh, go, anyway, so Derek's is distrostool.com. Uh, there's, no, that's, that's, not right. that's not right. That's yeah, <laughs> not right. So, registering it right now. <laughs> So uh, Derek can be found on his DistroTube YouTube channel and in other places you want to talk about, like maybe like, uh, I think you're on Master... Library, that's it. We yeah, all are on library. Like, Everybody yeah. should be on library. Check it out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic. We'll have links in the show notes for DistroTube's YouTube channel and library, of course. And uh, also be sure, be sure to check out the Destination Linux Network, other shows that we have. We have Hardware Addicts, Linux for Everyone, DLN Extend Podcast, and a lot of other content. So be sure to check it out by going to DestinationLinux.network. Everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Yep, thank you. See you next week. Have a good one.